Matt Sanduli is the model for how to succeed in the sports broadcast business. He began his career at ESPN straight out of college, working in the mailroom. From there, Sanduli's star within ESPN rose almost as fast as the company did, as by the time he left last year, he had comfortably worked as the senior coordinating producer at the largest sports media company in the world for several years. He's been tasked with working the biggest events and has worked alongside the most recognizable names in the business, but there is no accomplishment he's had in his life that is bigger than coming on the Trail Mix podcast. Nah, I'm just kidding. But his wisdom, experience, and advice spills over every minute of this podcast, and if you want to pursue a career in this business, this episode is a good place to start. So here it is, episode 16 of the Trail Mix podcast with Matt Sanduli. So you were the senior coordinating producer at ESPN. Can you tell me a little bit about what that job entailed? So as a senior coordinating producer, uh, I was assigned multiple sports to oversee. And when you oversee those sports, you oversee them from everything from budgets uh, to scheduling to administration uh, to content direction. You are providing the direction for the entire team on what you want the shows to look like and how you want the shows to feel and what are some of the things that we should be um, dealing with on a regular basis in terms of providing the viewers interesting content to watch uh, as you document the game. So in my, my last assignments were college baseball and little league baseball. Uh, and again, so I would set the direction for what those shows should look like and for the points of emphasis during the course of the year on what we wanted uh, folks to be dealing with, again, to enhance the viewer's experience and to give the viewer the best possible product we could do at home. Uh, and again, a big portion of my days also were spent on the administrative side of things, literally scheduling. I think this past year, if we played 2020, we were supposed to have about 385 regular season games between ESPN, ESPN2, the SEC network, and the ACC network. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ground to cover there. And then on the Little League side, that was also about 380 games. People just think it's Williamsport. It's not. It's all the other things that go along with Williamsport. So all the ancillary divisions. And a lot of that stuff shows up on ESPN+. Plus. Um, so, you know, it's a combination of administrative the, it's a combination of the business side and the tv side which is actually like i said pretty cool um for me that's kind of what how i ended up and where i ended up and uh it was nice to be able to live in both worlds so you're almost kind of matching uh everything together from like who's working the jobs to scheduling i mean even to kind of how you want the broadcast to look and that ultimately you kind of had the final say in that, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously the producer has the final say when he sits in the chair to produce the show, to execute the show. I'm providing the direction. So like the best way to think about it is from, from my point of view is I'm kind of the head coach. The producer is kind of the quarterback. And, you know, the director is the guy who's driving the bus. Uh, and so... You know, so I'm, I'm kind of given the direction. The producer takes that direction, puts his or her spin on it, and then they execute with the director. I always used to say when I was the producer, I would plot the course and then the director would drive the bus. Uh, and so go a step further back, 
I'm not plotting the direct course. I'm telling you, I want you to get from point A to point B. And as the producer, you, you figure out how to get from point A to point B and the director gets you there. So obviously I met you uh, when you jumped into my play-by-play class here at ASU. Um, and you gave a lot of great insight during that class. The, the one thing that was asked to you that I also want to hear and expand upon is when you're hiring a play-by-play guy or you're looking to bring somebody on, what are the things that you look for? So, you know, the, the thing I look for the most is does the person have an understanding of what they're doing um, as it relates to doing a broadcast, right? So I can watch a tape or I can listen to a, a tape or a link and I can get an understanding of the person's level of knowledge, uh, their level of instinct, uh, if you will. And, and basically what I'm talking about there is just by watching and listening to what they're saying, I can get a feel for their understanding of the game and understanding of their job they're supposed to be doing, right? So they're supposed to document the game. That's what their number one job is. And does that person have a feel for the timing of that? Does that person have a feel for the pace of that? Does that person have a feel for the person they're potentially working next to if they have a partner? Um, do they understand the relationship of the game and the timing of the game and how that correlates to what they're doing in their chair? And it's pretty easy to pick up. And again, you know, all the, the people who do it well are the people who've done it for a long time and have experience. But you can tell even early on if somebody has the inherent nature, and a lot of times it just gets back to, are they a fan of the game? Do they know what's going to happen next? Do they understand what's going to happen next? And to me, like I said, the, one of the big things is pace. Do they understand the pace of the game? And do they understand where they fit in in the pace of the game? And also, do they understand the game is the important thing, not necessarily what they're saying or what they're doing. It's, are they able to relate to me as a viewer or a listener, what's happening on the field or in the gym, um, in a, in a orderly and coherent fashion, again, going back to, is the pace correct? Who's somebody that is working play by play today that kind of exhibits those qualities you think? Well, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the folks in the big time jobs definitely understand and, and get it right. Um, some get it more than others. Um, but, you know, it's not hard to figure out who really understands what's happening, you know, from the legendary, you know, Al Michaels, who's in his 70s, right, uh, to some of these younger folks who are doing games in their 30s. Uh, it, you know, you, you can just tell by listening. And again, the list is long, right? So Al Michaels is where he is because of where he is, right, because of who he is. Joe Buck is where he is because of who he is. Jim Nance is where he is because of who he is. Um, but like, you know, I, I mentioned in our class the other day, you know, a guy like Jason Benetti, who's on the younger side, um, but he, again, his background was a whole lot of minor league baseball. So he was doing 150 games a year for a handful of years. So you get there pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, the, like I said, the folks in the bigger profile jobs for the most part have a good understanding and and even you know they don't have to be in the highest profile 
Um, but like, you know, Al Michaels is Al Michaels. You know? yeah. And I, Brent Musburger still does radio for the Oakland Raiders, Las Vegas Raiders now. Uh, and like no one understood it better than Brent Musburger, right? He's still doing it, um, just in a different form right now. Is it a natural thing to be good at play-by-play? Or is there somebody that came in ESPN when you were working there that didn't have all the tools of the trade yet and then kind of develop them over time? You know, I I wouldn't say there was anybody on the play-by-play side because, again, once they got to ESPN, they had to be at a certain level to get there, right? Sure. Um, On the analyst side, it's a little different. You know, the analyst side, I've definitely had to come in and really didn't have a great understanding of his we were after. Um, and they, they, again, were able to grow and get much, much better at it um, from, from the beginning of when they started to where they ended up just because they didn't understand. I, I, I think there is some natural ability. I really believe that. And that comes with being a fan, right? So if you're a big fan of a specific sport and you're going to call that sport, you already have a, an advantage over somebody who doesn't know that sport very well, right? So there is an inherent basic, like if it were me, I've never called a game. But if someone said, oh my God, we need you to call a game, I can call a baseball game and survive, Right. Right. I don't know how well I would be able to call gymnastics or hockey or like, I just don't know if I can. And I know, the, I mean, I know hockey, I'm a fan of hockey, but I'm not a fan of hockey. Like I'm a fan of baseball. Like I just couldn't do it that way. But I think, I think I could survive a baseball game just based upon my knowledge of the game and my fandom of the game. Um, now also there are people who, who get better who grow in their roles and get better from one sport to the next. Um, and I think it's just a matter of doing it, you know, repetition gets you there. And again, the bottom line is you gotta be a fan. If you're not a fan, people will see through you in a heartbeat, <laughs> you know? Right. How much do you think that play by play, which really hasn't changed since the outset of commentary going alongside sports now that we're entering kind of into this, uh, you know, the first two decades of this new century, streaming services are coming along. Um, the way people consume games is completely different than it was even 20 years ago. How much do you think that art form is going to kind of evolve or is it, is it going to kind of always be a consistent aspect of how people watch and consume sports? I, I think there's a consistent aspect to it there's always been a consistent aspect to it, right? Because ultimately what you're to do, what you're charged to do is describe the action that is happening in front of you. I do think it's evolved. I mean, if you go back and one of the things about the virus, man, we got the chance to see some old broadcasts that, you know, people really never took a chance to go back and look at. And just the entire discussion, the entire commentary is different than what it was um, back in the day. And I think that will continue to evolve. And I think as the games evolved, I mean, baseball is still baseball, right? But baseball now is different than baseball 20 years ago by the conversation that's going on, um, by the direction of, of how teams are put together. So, so those kinds of things help evolve the broadcast itself because you're now covering different things, you know? Um, 
And again, the conversation is very different now than what it was. It's much more, in my opinion, it's much more intricate. It's much more within the game than what it was. I mean, if you go back to, you know, I go back to the 70s, right? Because I'm a, I'm a young, whatever, 12-year-old watching the 77 World Series. Uh, and you listen to Howard Cosell and you listen to Tom Seaver, who's in the booth when Reggie Jackson hits three home runs. It was such surface stuff. It was such obvious stuff. And the conversation was a little bit deeper than that, but the depth of the analysis is nowhere near what it is today, um, just in terms of how and why. And, and, and I think we answer a lot more of those questions now. We teach the game a little bit better than we taught the game back then. And obviously now, last five, six, seven years, analytics, whole different ballgame. So I think it does evolve as the sports evolve. Um, you know, are we ever going to see radical departure from what we have? I don't think so, but who the hell knows? Like, I, you know, I don't know. Is somebody really want to have somebody in the booth who's describing the action in a different way? I mean, it, you know, the one thing to think about, you know, Vince Scully was on his own for the longest time. Like you talk about, there was no evolution there. But that was still probably the best local broadcaster was Vin Scully for six innings because he didn't do the last three usually. But Vin Scully for the six innings was the best local broadcast that was out there. It was different than everybody else's because everybody else was doing something else. But I mean, who didn't want to listen to Vin Scully? I, I, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm on the East Coast and I have the baseball package. And I would tell you that nine times out of 10, if I watched a West Coast game after the East Coast games ended, it was the Dodgers because I got to listen to Vince Scully. Like, you know, so there's somebody who did it from the 50s, right? right? Who did it up until a couple of years ago. And, you know, his way of going about his business was so unique and so different and so good that it didn't need to evolve into what some of these things have evolved to. So, you know, I think it'll always evolve as the sports evolve. I wonder if play-by-play is kind of that one almost like sacred job when it comes to uh, sports television, because a lot of things get handled uh, with the advent of technology. I mean, for example, when I get into sports journalism, a lot of people who have been in the business for a long time say, well, you know, sports writing jobs are going away. Um, You know, a lot of these other jobs are going away because it's just easier for technology you don't need as many people to kind of put in numbers when a computer can kind of run an algorithm or something like that. I do wonder if play-by-play is going to kind of remain above that as if it really can't be replaced um, by technology. I mean, is that something that you see or is, or is it even possible that uh, the job could kind of filter away after a certain time and be like a relic of a bygone era? No, I don't think so. I think, I think it will always be there. I think the way we go about doing it will be different. I do think that the virus has shown some of the uh, different ways that, that it can be done now. Um, you know, guys are sitting in their offices in their house calling games now. That would never, ever, ever have been an option or even thought about 20 years ago, right? So I think the way they do it might get tweaked here and there. And again, a lot of that has to do with just efficiency and, and being able to save some money and 
obviously it was it was born because of the virus. Um, so the way they do it will change, but I, I don't think you can ever truly replace them. I think you know people will have the option to listen or not. I think there might become a time where you know it's it is kind of an option to have kind of a video game play by play, right? You know those guys sit in a in a voiceover booth and and voice all kinds of things for for months at a time and and then it gets uh, tied to the, the video games. Is there a possibility that something like that could happen? Yeah, I think somewhere down the road as an option. I still think a live voice is always going to be something that you need to capture what's going on in front of you if you're going to do it correctly. Yeah. What do you think in terms of every network that broadcasts major sporting events, you know, they negotiate their own TV rights and they have their own set of championship games. Uh, what network do you think offers kind of the best slate of championship games in terms of, I mean, you think about Nance gets to do, uh, he goes from in every three years, he goes from the Super Bowl to the final four to the Masters. Joe Buck gets to do the Super Bowl and the World Series. And then obviously someone like Mike Tirico, he's at a lot of different golf tournaments, but he gets to do Sunday night. And then, you know, NBC also has the Olympics. I mean, which, which one is probably the best one to end up with? I don't know. You know, I think it kind of depends on your sport, which sport you like the most. You know what I mean? Like, you know, again, when you start to think about championships, you know, the, the, the Foxes of the world have a lot of championships, right? Between Super Bowls and um, Major League Baseball's World Series and playoff games. Um, you know, they have... Uh, Big Ten championship, like they have some championships at Fox, right? CBS has some championships too. They they'll have a Super Bowl. You know, do you think of the golf? You know, do you think of the Masters with that? Sure. Do you think of some of the other golf tournaments they have with that? Probably not. Um, you know, and, and you know, again, the Final Four. So you know, everybody's got a little piece of the pie. I'm not sure there's one that stands out. And quite honestly, I don't think one can stand out anymore because they're so expensive. I mean, those properties are so expensive. You just can't own them all. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we used to talk about at ESPN is a lot was, you know, we, we got, we had the NBA championship. We had the college football championship. Those are like the only championships we really had that had yeah. that level of, you know, we had college world series championship and we have little league championships and we have tennis championships, but like, you know, our championship, we, we kind of became, came a little bit more of the regular season drivers of things. Um, but I, it's just hard to say if one's better than the other one, if anyone sits above the other one, because when you start to break it down and list championships, I bet you get to a point where it's pretty even between Fox and CBS and NBC and ESPN slash ABC. You know, those are kind of the real players um, because you start to think about, okay, well, you know, uh, you know, ESPN, ESPN has all the tennis championships. Well, they don't have all of them, but they have a couple of them. And CBS has a couple of the golfers or most of the golf, but they don't have all of the golf. And, you know, you start to break it down that way. And NBC has the Stanley Cup finals with the Super Bowl, right? But like, what else do they got? They got the Olympics, which happens every couple of years. So it's just, when you, when you, when you lay it out there, they're all pretty equal. I think it's just a perception of who has more than the other one. You're right. And I think it really does come down to what your sport is and which sports you're kind of interested in. 
Yeah, and I think, listen, championships are cool, right? Championships are, you, you want to have the championships because that's the culmination of the season. That's the culmination of the story. Um, but they're expensive, man. And, I, you know, again, I would tell you as a fan, my favorite championship is the World Series because I'm a baseball guy. Through the years, though, my second favorite championship has become the national football, the college football national championship game. I just, it's a great night. It's a Monday night. It's during the week. It's just, it just has a different feel to it. Now I'm a little biased because I, I, I actually did seven of them. I didn't do the main show. I was producing some of those shows on the, on the uh, megacast side. Yeah. And it really, it really just kind of became my favorite championship world series than that. And then I would tell you probably that the NCAA basketball tournament's probably next for me. And then the Super Bowl. I'm not a huge NFL guy. I mean, I, I've been going to the same Super Bowl party since 1981, <laughs> which unfortunately we're not going to have this year. Yeah. Um, you know, but that becomes more of a social gathering as it does me sitting paying attention to the games, whereas, which is what I'm doing in the World Series, which is what I'm doing in the football national championship and the basketball national championship. The Super Bowl is an event. And it becomes a party. And like I said, I go to that same party every year with kids I grew up with. Um, so it's really cool. It's a great day. I look forward to it. But I would tell you that the World Series and the football national championship, college football national championship are my two favorite championship events. Yeah, I read something the other day where uh, it read that in terms of the NFL licensing agreements, ESPN is paying the most at almost $2 billion for one night a week. And you're talking about how expensive these like championship games are. I mean, Monday night football, while I mean, it has to compete with Thursday night and Sunday night, whereas it, it didn't 20 years ago. Um, and the stature of it is kind of decreased just because of the competition. How does a number like 1.9 billion come out for one night a week, as opposed to CBS and Fox having an entire slate of Sunday games? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of other things that go into that, that people don't necessarily always understand right so there are just so many different pieces to the puzzle the, the right to do the highlight shows the right to do the highlight shows on a digital platform um you know the, the leagues now understand that their highlight their highlights have value and so they try to monetize that value as much as they can and there are so many different pieces to that puzzle i, I mean i don't even know i know we pay 1.9 million um but they're they're there, there are so many pieces to the puzzle that people just don't know what goes into them and the layers upon layers of rights that we require that we that ESPN acquired in that deal. Um, I know when you look at it at face value, though, you're like, wow, that's a lot of money for Monday Night Football. It's not just Monday Night Football. Right. OK, that's that's really the difference. Um, and I would I would expect that that'll that'll change moving forward. I think that I think that ESPN will make a play for a either an additional game or more postseason, the opportunity to potentially do a Super Bowl. Um, but I think that that's, you know, it is a lot of money. There's no question about it. It's a lot of money. But there are a lot of other things that go along with that. All the shoulder programming, the right to do the, the uh, NFL live show every day. Got it. You know, all those things that go into play there. That, uh, you know, and I don't know if you, you saw in the rights deal, there's, there's rumors out there that the Major League Baseball deal with ESPN is being reduced. That okay. Major League Baseball and its new deal with, ES, with, with ESPN will only do Sunday Night Baseball and a couple other random games along with Home Run Derby. And so that money's kind of coming down. It's funny, you know, the, the rights fees, 
I had, I had really been thinking the last, honestly, probably 10 years that the rights fees at some point are going to have to slow down and get stagnant and come back to earth. And they just kept going up and I, it'll be really interesting to see the next round. And again, if ESPN and major league baseball is any indication that they're going to have to think a little bit differently about how to maximize the league's going to have to think a little bit differently, how to maximize their revenues, because I think the broadcast entities just with the flood of op options out there for people, the money is going to have to slow down a little bit. And I agree. I think the only other argument for why I see that these broadcast entities are paying so much is that there really isn't another form of live television anymore uh, than live sporting events. That's the only thing I can sit down and, you know, suffer through commercials for is a three and a half hour long college football game or a baseball game, or, you know, I watch the warriors cause I'm from the Bay area, but I mean, that's the only thing that I see people really sit down and watch together um, as opposed to, and my dad would tell me about uh, how like, I don't know, 60 million people watch the end of mash um, and they'd like shut down bars to watch the end of a TV show. And that just seems like, that just seems like something that would never happen today. Um, and so it is interesting because I do wonder kind of, will they ever slow down? Because you're right. I mean, it seems like these sports leagues just keep seeing dollar signs and no end in sight for how much they can charge um, the broadcast companies. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if the digital companies ultimately get into this move, right? If the digital companies decide they want to do live sports television. Now, you know, Facebook does, and, and I know NFL had, uh, I forget who's doing NFLs, but NFL had them going. So they're starting to dip their toe in a little bit. And they listen, those large media companies, the, the, the Facebooks, and I don't know if it's a media company by definition, but the Facebooks and the Amazons and the, if they decided they wanted to get into sports, they certainly have the wherewithal to do that. And live sports does bring a certain percentage of fans, as you said, because it's live, because people are willing to sit through it. You know, the only other thing I would tell you is probably news uh, in, in an election cycle like we just had. Uh, those two things are the, really the only two things that people sit down and watch. And I'm, you know, I'm a little old school, despite the Netflix and the Hulus and the Disney Pluses, and you know, we have all those. Uh, and I'm, I'll search out like good documentaries on those, but I'll still flick through channels every night to see what's on TV, to watch TV live. Um, but you know, I'm a dinosaur, so like, <laughs> people don't watch TV like like they used to, you know. Right. And, and to your point, this, there's no question that sports value is it is live and it is a, it is an event uh, and you will get people to tune in and right, you, your audience will stick around as long as the game is decent, unless you're a local broadcaster doing your local team who you know you're going to get your, your average viewers every day. And if the team's really good, you'll get more. And if the team's really bad, you'll get a little bit less. Exactly. All right, let's switch gears really quick. I ask all my guests three things I'd like to know. Uh, so the first question for you, Matt, what was the first concert you ever attended? Uh, the first concert I ever attended would have to be, it was a combination of the Outlaws and the Charlie Daniels Band. Wow. At, at the New Haven Coliseum in New Haven, Connecticut. And that had to be early 80s maybe <laughs> 82 ish maybe somewhere in there what a yeah. 
Southern, little Southern rock and roll. How about that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. What we're, is? We're we're uh, my wife and I are regular annual concert goers of Jimmy Buffett and Billy Joel. So, <laughs> so you're part of the the Margaritaville crowd. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. We've seen Jimmy Buffett um, many times, including uh, we saw him in Vegas. We saw him out in Chicago. Yeah. Um, we we follow him around. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I imagine there's a few Hawaiian shirts in the closet then. Uh, there's a couple of decent ones. Yeah. Matter of fact, one of our, one of our favorite ones was um, we're, we're about two hours away from a venue, an, an open air venue that Buffett used to play all the time up in Massachusetts. And uh, a bunch of us um, went to an RV and uh, I drove the damn thing the two hours up <laughs> and it was, it was a great night. There was probably, I don't know, there was 12 people in our RV and we just had a great night. The worst was you can never get out of this parking lot because there's only like one way out of the parking lot. Right. So the worst was me driving the RV home about four o'clock in the morning, still not home. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. We, we, we're kind of the old, we're the old, we're part of the old Buffett crowd that uh, you walk by and laugh and go, oh, look at those old people still partying, watching, listening to Jimmy Buffett. That's not- <laughs> no, I love my, uh, my old little league baseball coach was part of the Buffett crowd. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure you've I'm sure you've seen him in passing at one Probably. of these concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, so for someone that's entering the field of uh, sports media, what, what's the best advice you could give them? I guess the best advice I can give anybody who's trying to get into this business is to take every opportunity that you can get that you can earn to learn as much as you can about as many different aspects of you can of the business. Um, It is short-sighted to be set on one specific thing because I would tell you that one specific thing in the long run just shortens your career or uh, limits your career, I guess. be super, have your eyes open, be willing to do different things, be willing to look at different things, be willing to try different things because you just never know. Um, one of the things from my own personal career, at one point uh, we had a, ESPN was expanding big time and I had applied to be a producer, a director and another position called a highlight supervisor, which was kind of an overseer of all the people who did the super, who did the highlights each night. And I went into my boss's um, office and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, what job do you want? I said, what job do you want me to have? Because I want, I would like to be a part of all three of them. Like there are things about all three of them I'd love to do. And uh, he's like, all right, get out of here. And um, when he, when I, you know, called me back two weeks later and he made me a producer, I was 26 years old. Um, and he made me a producer and he said, look, if I'm going to take a chance on you, I'm going I'm to I'm take a chance on somebody. I'm going to take a chance on somebody who I know, who I know is going to work hard to get the job and to be better. But my point is, I was willing to do whatever it took because I always wanted to know what all those jobs entailed. And throughout my career, I went down a path of really just trying to understand what different things were going on because ultimately it made me more valuable. It made me a better employee, um, but I had a better understanding. And quite honestly, I think that's one of the reasons I lasted as long as I did at ESPN is because I had an understanding of how everything worked. 
And if you, if someone needed to know something, they knew if they came to me, they'd probably get a pretty good answer. Yeah. Um, you know, as you go through the ranks, as you, as you get your opportunities, take advantage of your opportunities and then some. Like somebody told me once, I had an old college professor who said, you have to be a self-starter. You have to be able to, to put yourself in a position to learn um, and, and find your own opportunities. And there's nothing truer. Like that's, that's the golden rule to me. Know as much as you can know uh, and get as much experience as you can get and be as well-rounded as you can be in this media world because the media world changes day to day and uh, you'll be fine. I feel like I know the answer to this last question because you're wearing a, a Mets sweatshirt. Yeah. Uh, did you ever get to meet your idol? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, listen, I've been lucky. I've gotten to meet many of my idols. Um, you know, it's hard to say I, I had one true idol. Um, you know, as a, as a young, as a little boy, I certainly did. Uh, but I've been so lucky, man, through my career. I've had conversations with people. You know, and we, we just happened to be talking on the day Hank Aaron passed away. Right. I had the opportunity to meet Hank Aaron. I had the opportunity to talk to Hank Aaron. I had the opportunity to thank Hank Aaron for going through what he went through for, for the game of baseball. You know, as he was chasing the record, the things that he was put through were just not nice and not pleasant. And right. I felt as a baseball fan, I wanted to thank him. And I had that one opportunity. Um, I've had the opportunity to, to sit down and, and talk to the greats of many games. Um, Baseball has always kind of been my focus. So, um, you know, as I was growing up, the people that I watched, the people that I idolized, the people that I that I were were my heroes as a young man, I got a chance to meet most of and talk to them, and just spectacular. I mean, I, you know, I think I, t I told the story at Arizona State when we were talking about my Tom Seaver. You know, as a Met fan, everybody's favorite Met was Tom Seaver. Right. Um, and when Tom Seaver got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I got to go to his house in Greenwich, Connecticut. I got to sit in his backyard and I got to interview him for a half an hour. And we just kind of walked through his career. And I was only, you know, this is like 1992. So I was only a couple of years into the business. And I remember going, I remember on the way home, there was no cell phones back then. But I remember when I got home, I literally called my parents and I said, I, I'm good. I, I met my hero. I'm, I, don't have to, I don't have to do anything else in this business. I did what I had to do. I had a half an hour conversation with Tom Seaver who, when I sat down, said to me, hey, we don't have a lot of time here. Like, he was trying to get rid of me already. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, so anyway, long story short, he said we were going to do 20 minutes. We did 40 minutes. Right. When we were done, he gave us a tour of his garden, and his wife came out and offered us lemonade. Like, it was really kind of one of those cool little moments. But, you know, I, I, I've been lucky enough to have conversations or, or be a part of conversations with, like, Willie Mays, uh, which is remarkable, I, you know, the Ken Griffey's of the world. There was a whole, there was a time in the early to mid nineties that I was a feature producer and I had access to a lot of the, the greats of the game. And, you know, those experiences are super, super cool. I mean, look at, they're no different than you and I talking, but you get to talk to them about things that you saw them do, or you saw, a matter of fact, one of the, one of the funniest conversations I ever had, Ken Griffey, this is probably the mid nineties, right? So Ken Griffey's at the height of Ken Griffey. And uh, I was in Detroit doing something for us. And I was in the Mariners dugout and it was a rain delay and Harold Reynolds was still playing. Okay. So, so I don't know what year it was. Anyway, so Harold said, starts talking to me 
And then um, Griffey starts talking. And, and I, Ken Griffey, when I was 17 or 18, um, Ken Griffey had come to my hometown to play in a baseball tournament. And his dad was still on the Yankees at that time. Right. And I happened to be at the event. I was, I was, I think I was working for somebody, but I was at the event for some reason. And, uh, you know, Ken Griffey Sr. shows up in a limousine because he'd come from New York. And it was so cool. And I, I just happened to bring up conversation with, with Griffey. Again, this is young Griffey. Um, uh, and he starts rattling off who was on the team and how great they were and how, how good they did in the tournament. Like, it was just one of those right, kind of cool oddball conversations that, you know, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And that got Ken Griffey engaged in having a conversation with me for 20 minutes about something that happened in his, you know, young life that was kind of cool. So, you know, like I said, it's probably early nineties, probably not when he was uh, at the top of his game. Uh, yeah. Probably early on. I mean, when, when wasn't he at the top of his game? But yeah. He was but, uh, cool stuff. A side thought about uh, Ken Griffey Jr., since you're a baseball fan, you've been a baseball fan for so long. Is that the nicest swing, the most visually appealing swing you've ever seen? Beautiful. I mean, obviously the left-handed swing always has a little something extra to it, right? But Griffey's swing was just so gorgeous, man. I, I used to tell stories to my buddies because, you know, I, back in the day, there, there's, a, there's a room at ESPN called screening. And that's where all the games are watched. And that's where all the highlights are edited together. And back in my younger days when I was doing games, like there were guys who came to bat that you just stopped what you were doing to turn around and watch somebody else's game, right? So on a given night, I could be doing the Mets-Cubs game and you could be doing the, you know, A's-Tigers game and we could be sitting next to each other, right? So I'm watching my game and I'm taking my notes and I'm logging. But yet when Mark McGuire came to bat, I was watching your game. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it was, it was literally, that we, we did that all the time. You know, we, hey, bases loaded, Maguire's up, and people would just turn around. Yeah. But like, you, know, you think about back in those days, man, and this is before the steroid craziness, right? But like when, when, when Griffey came up, people, you stopped to watch him hit. You didn't, you didn't turn the channel, right? Maguire, um, uh, I'm just trying to think of those guys in the early 90s, you know, the Fred McGriff of the world. You didn't turn, you didn't walk away when Fred McGriff was up. You didn't know what Fred McGriff was going to do. You yeah. never knew someone was going to hit the ball like you've never seen them hit the ball before. And that was the cool part of it, man. But yeah, no, Griffey's swing was spectacular. Just gorgeous. Yeah. I, in my opinion, the nicest swing uh, in, in the history of the game. Um, Matt, I want to ask you about uh, how you worked your way up at ESPN. Um, and you started in the mailroom. Uh, yeah. So this is really, truly a story of getting your foot in the door. Um, and then kind of working your way up from there. So how did you kind of find your way to ESPN? Because you found your way pretty much directly out of college, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the way in back then was through the mailroom. Uh, I would say the biggest mailroom alumni was George Bodenheimer, who was the president of the company for a while and probably yeah. was the best president of the company. Yeah, he came into the mailroom. But in those days, the way into the company was the mailroom. So we're talking about 1988 now. So the company's nine years old, not even nine years old. Uh, probably eight and a half years old. Uh, and the way in was through the mailroom. And so I had a class, I went to Southern Connecticut State University and I had a class as a junior where George Grand, who was the one of the anchors, he was actually one of the original anchors when the ESPN first came on the air, 
had taught the class. So I knew George and had multiple conversations with George about ESPN. And then I had a buddy in school who had a friend who was in the HR department at ESPN at the time. And he said, let me talk to my buddy and have him talk to, actually his, my friend in college had a friend who was a production assistant who knew the HR person. That's the chain. So as I got closer to graduating, I had done a couple things. I had, I had internships at a local ABC affiliate in, uh, in New Haven. And I had done a couple of things on the side for ESPN, just these random like runner jobs or whatever. Um, but my buddy spoke to his buddy who spoke to the person in HR. I got my resume to that person. Somewhere along the way, I had mentioned to George that my resume had gotten to HR and George may have or may or may not have said something to HR. Yeah. Um, and I got, an, I, got, I got a phone call from the HR department that said, um, thanks, we have your stuff. We're, we're not doing anything right now, sorry. And I was like, wow, I was bummed out because my buddy's buddy said they were gonna do something. Yeah. Well, whatever, turn the page now, two weeks later, three weeks later, I get a phone call, hey, we want you to interview. Okay, great. So I go interview, and again, this is all happening in April probably of 1988. So I go interview, I don't hear anything. Uh, and my buddy's buddy hears that they're going to start opening the gates a little bit to bring some more people in. Uh, and I get a phone call that says, hey, we're, we're interested in you uh, coming to work in the mailroom. And I was like, OK, great. Let me let me think about that and I'll get back to you. Uh, the mailroom at the time was a Monday through Friday job, kind of a eight to five. where You did whatever was required of you, not only in the mailroom, but we drove. We used to drive. Back then, we used to deliver paychecks to New York City or yeah. bring equipment that needed to be worked on to New Jersey. And the Sony, there was a Sony shop in New Jersey that fixed tape machines and cameras and stuff. And so you did whatever. Um, and I, they said that the job was $5 an hour. And uh, I said, okay. And I had gotten an offer from a local independent station here in Connecticut to be a master control operator, which is basically rolling commercial spots and making sure that shows are running correctly for like you know, $25,000 a year, as opposed to 11.5. Yeah. Um, my dad thought I was nuts, but um, I chose <laughs> to go to ESPN. I said, we'll treat it as a summer job and see what happens for $5 an hour. So I was at ESPN a week and I got a phone call from one of the guys who I originally interviewed. This guy's name was Al Jaffe and he's legendary. Yeah. Because he was the talent recruiter at ESPN, all talent, not just TV, not just on TV, but behind the scenes. Uh -huh. And Al had said, hey man, are you still interested in ESPN? And I said, wow, I'm working in the mailroom. And he's like, oh, um, well, I want you to interview with a couple other people. I'm like, okay, great. So in the meantime, one of my jobs was to drive, there was a gentleman by the name of John Walsh. John Walsh had just gotten to ESPN. He was legendary. Um, and he had changed the culture at ESPN. He made journalism first and he changed the way we did things. And literally one of my jobs between when I got the job and when I went for that second set of interviews was to drive John Walsh to the airport because John Walsh was living in Washington, D.C. and was commuting to, to Connecticut every week to do the ESPN job. So one Saturday morning, I had to go pick John Walsh up and bring him to the airport. So he gets in the car and I knew who he was, obviously. That was a big, big guy for me to be driving. Right. Kind of so, looks like Santa Claus. He does. He does look like Santa Claus. Huge baseball fan. So I'm like, perfect. We got, you know, 
So he gets in the car and he's got a bag full of newspapers. He's got an Oakland A's hat on. And, you know, he, like you said, he's Santa Claus. He's got white hair. He's an albino. He's got white right. hair. Yeah. So anyway, so he gets in the car and we start, we talk a little bit of baseball. And uh, he says to me, um, you know, where did you go to school? What did you major in? What um, your parents, what do you, you know, what do your parents do? Uh, and basically that was like the extent of our conversation. And it was cordial and it was nice. And we talked a little baseball. And so the second round of interviews, I'm waiting to go talk to John Walsh. I've talked to a bunch of other people again. And, you know, I'm, I'm working, I'm in the mailroom, but I'm waiting outside of John Walsh's office. And at that time, John Walsh was literally so busy that I probably waited there, I don't know, two hours. And he finally had his secretary come out and say, you know what, John knows you, just go back to the mailroom, we're good. And I was like, okay. I don't know if that was good or bad, Yeah. but then literally like a week later, I got a call and they said, we, we want you to be a production assistant. Um, and they offered, they, they hired me as a full-time employee in the mailroom and then promoted me to a production assistant, which means they could just keep my salary low. And they yeah. used to play a silly game back then, but that's, that's really how I got started. So I, I literally was in the mailroom for probably a month and a half. I was a production assistant from July of 88 until the fall of 1990. Uh, I had done a season of, of baseball. And in 1990, they sent me to the postseason to cover the uh, postseason stuff. And before I left, they promoted me to associate producer. And so my first big gig was the, uh, the National League Championship Series, the Reds and the Pirates in 1990. And then I went on to the World Series with the Reds and the A's. Uh, and then I was kind of off and running. Um, I was an associate producer for about three years. And in 1995, uh, I, excuse me, in 1993, I was promoted. So 90, I was an associate producer. 93, I became a producer. Uh, I was only a producer for a short time because my gig was baseball. And when the strike hit, my schedule was all over the place. I was doing sports centers at two in the morning. I was doing sports centers at six at night. I was doing sports centers at eight in the morning on the weekends. I was doing the NBA show. Like I was a fill-in. It was driving me crazy. And there was an opportunity to slide into our event department. And in 1995, I slid into our event department. Uh, and then things kind of took off from there. In uh, 2002, I became a coordinating producer. In 2007, I became, 2006, I became a senior coordinating producer. Um, and so you kind of went from, you know, PA work, which was cutting highlights, to associate producer work, which was kind of producing features, to producing, to actually line producing shows, yeah. to then kind of looking between the, the events and the games, to then producing the games, and then everything else that kind of came that way. And then ultimately, back in those days, you got promoted. That was the way to make money. You had to get promoted. So you got yeah. promoted. I mean, my, my favorite, I mean, I tell everybody this, my favorite job in the world, two, one's the mailroom, yeah. and two was in the early 2000s, I was producing Wednesday afternoon baseball. We had an afternoon baseball package, which was the greatest schedule in the world. Tuesday morning, I'd get on a plane, I would fly. We'd watch the game Tuesday night or we'd go out for dinner. Wednesday morning, we'd get up, we'd go to the ballpark, we'd do the game, we'd get on a plane and we'd fly home. And, and that was like that was like the greatest gig in the world. And it was a day baseball game, right? right. Who doesn't like day baseball? Uh, so that was really the greatest, the greatest gig I had. So you're kind of like almost like the Forrest Gump of ESPN. I mean, because you're driving John Walsh around and you're there um, from when ESPN is a relatively small cable company uh, broadcasting, you know, games in the Big East and 
uh, has not really made its way to the national level. And then obviously it explodes in the nineties. Um, I, I actually, so I got a subscription to audible, which is like audiobooks. Um, and the first book I got on, on audible was this 28 hour long book about ESPN. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called those guys have all the fun. And, uh, I basically heard all the stories about ESPN and, and it's, ascent from this very small company in Connecticut into, you know, the sports mammoth that it is today. Um, The interesting thing to me was kind of the the culture of ESPN uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s and just all the personalities that were going in and out of the company at the time and just trying to manage everybody from, you know, Olbermann all the way down. Um, And it it was, I heard it was, it was pretty rowdy for a time. Um, What was it kind of, being a part of that scene um, when ESPN was trying to figure itself out and grow um, into what it is today? Um, it was it was really cool, right? I mean, that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have been there when I was there. Um, I, I like to think I played a small part in, in helping get where, where it got, um, but it was different then. Like, you know, it, it was so small. It was really a mom and pop. You know, when I got there in the mailroom, there were 450 people in the company, and I was the youngest person in the company at 21 years old. Right. Um, but like early on, it was it was all hands on deck. Everybody was rowing the boat the same way, and everybody was just trying. We were the little guy, man. We were the little engine, and we were trying to stand up to the big guys. And you know, right before I got there, I, NFL contract came in '87, uh, so that was the big first. Oh wow, here they come! I, people say the America's Cup, but but the NFL contract was really the thing. And then we got baseball in 1990. Uh, you know, we got hockey along the way and we lost hockey along the way. But back in those days, man, it was a, it was a different time. It was really, really cool to be a part of it. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was young. Everybody was young. Um, everybody was just trying to be the best they can be and trying to figure out their role and, and how to play their role and how to make the company and how to make ESPN into what it became. Um, and so it was a really cool time to be there. I don't know if things were that rowdy. I mean, we were young. So, so there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of camaraderie. There was a lot of, um, we, we, we all hung out together because we were all the same age and we all had a lot of the same likes. And, and so there was, there was definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of time spent together. And there, you know, there are people today that, that I call my best friends that I met there. Um, there's one person who's raising her hand next to me, who I married, who I met there. So, you know, it, it was just a different time. Uh, it was so fun. I was so lucky to be there when I was there. You know, honestly, we didn't have the crate. There were the book makes things out a little bit more dramatic than they really were. I mean, we didn't have a lot of talent that that was crazy back then. I mean, Keith is a genius. Yeah. Keith, Keith is and was and always will be a genius. Um, but Keith always had problems with his bosses, no matter where he was. Um, so Keith was really kind of the only drama that happened at that point. And it wasn't really drama. It was just, you had to figure out how, how to get Keith to be Keith. And, and he was, he was great, man. He, he still is great. I love him. I, he's, he's something special. We, 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 obviously we were baseball buddies. He's a huge baseball guy. And I remember when Mickey Mantle died, um, or, or I don't know if he had died or if he was sick, whatever. 
but we, we were in our show meeting that day and um, they said, Keith, uh, we got to do a Mickey Mantle piece. And he's like, no problem, give me Maddie. And so we, we left the meeting, we went back to his desk and I said, all right, give me an hour. I got to go find video, give me a couple hours here. And I said, no, I'll come back and we'll work on it. He's like, okay, no problem. So I got on a tape library, which back in the day was literally a library. You, you walked, you found a tape. Okay, this might have something on it you need. Like, yeah. So it took a little bit of time. Anyway, I, I go back up and Keith has written a four minute Mickey Mantle as eloquent as eloquent could be. And it was just like, wow. I was like, geez, I hope I can do this justice because yeah. it was so good. And it just rattled off the top of his head. Like he's a genius. He's literally a genius. And uh, so we always had kind of the baseball thing in common. So it was kind of cool. Outside of uh, Keith Olbermann, who are the other people at SportsCenter uh, as a producer that you really enjoyed working with? Uh, you know, they're, they're, there's, there's probably nobody I didn't enjoy working with. How about that? Yeah. Um, but like, you know, you, you always, I don't know. We always had fun. We, we, we always had a good time, you know. Um, I did a bunch of stuff with Chris Berman and we just always had a blast. Um, I, again, on the baseball side, I, I, I had, you know, Gary Miller and Chris Myers. Uh, we just always had a lot of fun doing stuff. When I got to do, you know, I did do my handful of sports centers along the way with Dan and Keith and, and we had some fun there. Uh, I worked with, I, I didn't know necessarily produce the shows back then, but I was on the morning show for a while. So I was very close with Robin Roberts for a time. Um, like, like those folks were just like us like they were just fans too you know and so we really had a lot of fun together um you know chris berman um uh and i still kind of text he texts me every opening day of baseball because he knows how important it is to me and i text him every day of, of opening day for nfl because i know how important it is to him um but you became friends like bob lee and i bob lee and i did a week-long series of um in spring training about baseball and its future in like 1992. And we still call it the bad attitude tour because it was seven days, we were in three time zones. We were probably in like seven different cities. It was just, you know, it was just crazy. And we still to this day laugh about it. Um, and, and one of the other funny ones that I have with Bob Lee is, they, Bob Lee and I went to Las Vegas to do a story on Jerry Tarkanian being pushed out at UNLV. He was still the coach, yeah. but they were trying to get rid of him. And there was a huge fight with the board of regents and. So, you know, Bob and I go do our, our, our feature on him. And I had never been to Las Vegas before. Yeah. So we finish and we go to this unbelievable, like eight course dinner that Bob needed us to go to. Cause we had to go there. And I'm like, I'm, I'm in Vegas, man. I want to go to a casino. Like I've never been here. So anyway, so we wrap up with Bob and um, we head back to the hotel and I'm like, all right, I'll, we'll leave tomorrow morning. Whatever time we're going to leave, we'll be at the airport. And see you later. So he goes upstairs and I proceed to literally go to the casino, yeah. go to multiple casinos. So I'm out all night long and I'm in, I'm back at our hotel in the casino. And I know, you know, we're, I know this is pre 9-11. So you're just, you just show up at the airport and you're there, you're good. Anyway, I'm in the casino. I think we were staying at the Wynn at the time and I'm at the casino and I'm getting paged. I'm getting paged by Bob because he's afraid we're going to miss our flight because we haven't left yet. And I was, I said, I got to go get my stuff. Like, I'm not ready to go. I, we've still got another half an hour. The airport's right down the street and he's having a heart attack because we're going to miss our flight. But uh, that was one of the, one of the good ones with the, with the general. Yeah. The general. I like that. I, I mean, 
the other question I have um, as as an outsider is it, I, and I think you've you've pretty much answered this question. Um, it's just it's almost like when you go to Disneyland and you hope that the people inside the costumes are, are enjoying themselves and you hope that the people that work there are enjoying themselves as much as you're enjoying yourself. As someone that literally was born and raised uh, with ESPN, I used to race downstairs and watch SportsCenter in the morning. Um, I, it, it always kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, I wonder if these guys are really having as much fun behind the scenes as they are on camera. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to my early days when I was a, when I was a production assistant again, so this is like pre-technology there was, there was literally um, a, a ticker machine that used to spit out scores by half inning and spit out updates when stuff happened during the game. And we would have to sit there and we had, uh, we had score sheet. We had two score sheets, AL and NL for baseball. Uh, and they had the games and it had starting pitchers, and we would literally be keeping track of the games by half inning, who's hitting home runs, and, and that was part of the newsroom. And we sat um, up on the news desk, if you will, and the rest of the folks were sitting around us. Uh, and so everybody's offices, there weren't offices back then, everybody just had desks, and everybody's desks were in this one area. There was a monitor wall of about 12 monitors, and, and that was like, that's, you know, we were in a sports bar before there were sports bars, right? And, and the, we used to have so much fun. We used to laugh and have just so much fun um, just because we were all in the game. We were all, all watching games together. We were all laughing and talking and telling stories together. And, you know, it's funny. I recently heard from Tim Brando, uh, who Tim Brando in my days was a sports center anchor. And right. Tim Brando's desk was close to our little PA desk. And so Tim Brando would always play with us, right? But, that lack of a better term, he would play with us. And so um, I recently heard from him and we were, we were laughing about that. We were talking about those old days where we literally would just be goofing off um, and talking about sports or whatever, but he literally would just come to play with us. And, and I remember like prompting for Tim Brando and in the commercial, he would like turn around and talk to you and throw, you know, he'd throw paper clips at us because our little prompter room was right off the set. You know, like we just, it was fun. It was fun, man. And, you know, some of the things that the book talks about um, are dead on. There, there, there was a whole lot of fun that went on on a regular basis. Um, and it was just a really cool place to be at that point. Um, and for those of us, like I said, who were there and those of us who had kind of the longevity that I had, it'll always be that special place and we'll always have kind of that tie together. It, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's special, man. And, and again, friendships that last forever. Um, you know, I was telling a story the other day in, our, in the class we were, when someone asked about guys that who were really good at what they do. And like, my wife just mentioned John Saunders and like John Saunders was the greatest. Yeah. John Saunders was the coolest guy. Um, and just you wanted to hang out with John Saunders. Like when I was, a, I always tell the, I always tell the story in my mid twenties, John Saunders was responsible for me drinking a little too much alcohol because we'd go out after every, we'd go out every night. We'd go out and have a couple of drinks after the show every night. And John Saunders was, he, he never let you, John Saunders never let anybody pick up a tab. It was John Saunders, you know, that, that John Saunders took great pleasure 
and taking care of people who took care of him. And so, because everybody worked so hard, John would just, John was paying for it, you know, and he wouldn't hear anything less about it. Um, but just a, just a good guy. And I can't tell you how many laughs and how many, how many nights we just, we just, you know, when Jimmy Valvano was alive and, and they used to come in for championship week that we just had a lot of fun back in those days, man. Yeah. So now that uh, you had this 30 year career uh, with the company um, and now that you're no longer with the company, what are you looking to do? Um, I mean, what's next? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a couple different places, but I think, I think for me right now, where I am in my career, I still want to have some fun. I still want to do some good things. Uh, I'm open to doing something different. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see what that is. Uh, I've, I've actually talked to a couple of leagues to see if there's a way to potentially get involved in, in that aspect of things. Um, it's very possible I'll end up doing something similar to what I had been doing, maybe not necessarily for a network, but for an independent company. Um, I think for the time being now, I, I'm still ready to do more TV and ready to have fun and maybe go backwards a little bit and, and be less of an administrator and more of an executor uh, to go back and actually produce those games and have some fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It would be cool to kind of get involved in something different. One of the things that I've thought about the last handful of years, if I do need a second career, uh, was to become involved in like minor league baseball. I thought it'd be really kind of cool to see if I could become a minor league baseball like general manager. Or could I be someone who could potentially like run a venue, right? Like oversee the Hartford Civic Center, you know? Right. Um, unfortunately with the virus, both of those industries are, you know, as dormant as dormant could be right now. Um, and so I think initially early on, I'll probably look to do something I've, I'm similar, I've done similarly to the last handful of years. Um, but I would, oh, I would certainly be open to trying something different and seeing something different. And I think, you know, minor league baseball or grassroots baseball, even, you know, college baseball, I, I was in charge of for the last couple of years. Uh, even something like that would be kind of cool to get, to get out of the TV side of it and into the actual league slash team side of it. It would be cool to see that. Yeah. So your son is going to the Cronkite school. Uh, he's going this Well, he hasn't committed yet. Okay, he hasn't committed. He's got accepted to the crowd. He's got accepted, correct. And correct. our hope is that he does. Yeah, well, I like to tell everybody he, he wants to go into the family business because my wife sure. is a television director as well. So he wants to go into the family business. I think he's more on the journalistic side. He, he, he enjoys writing, um, but he, he, he wants to be around it, just kind of the same way I wanted to be around it, right? Right. Like, hey, my goal was to be around it in any way, shape or form I could, because I loved it, all sports. Um, and I was lucky enough to do it for as long as I did it. So there was a pipeline from the Newhouse School at Syracuse to ESPN and uh, a lot of those companies on the East Coast for a really long time. And I kind of wonder, because you've been on the inside kind of scouting talent um, and putting people into place uh, with, with your tasks at ESPN, what, what's kind of the the general idea of the students that come out of the Cronkite school um, for places like ESPN? I mean, are, are they at the level that Syracuse is or is there still a ways to go? Oh yeah, no, no, no question. They're, they're certainly there. Um, 
you know, what's interesting, Syracuse, Syracuse's reputation um, grew in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but when you think about it, there weren't, there were probably a handful of schools across the country that were doing television and doing sports television in their programs. Now everybody's doing it. You know, everybody's doing it. But, you know, Arizona State, listen, I, I worked with someone who graduated from Arizona State for those 32 years. Uh, and you know, she's great. And, and I have always been aware of Arizona State because one of the folks who helped run the program for a long time there from the technical side had worked for ESPN as well. Uh, Jim Dove, I don't know if you know that name at all. He's been retired for a while now. Uh, but Jim, for years, would talk about Arizona State and what they had going on and how great it was. And again, I, I knew from the person I worked with for all those years how great it was. And I, I you know, listen, I, you know, Syracuse is still a great television school, but there are a whole lot of great television schools now. And people come from all over the place. And I think that's one of the beauty thing, the beautiful things that's happened uh, to it. It's not just Syracuse. It's not just East Coast. People, kids are coming from all over the place now uh, because everybody has journalism or media or TV. And uh, there's a lot of talented people out there. And the facilities and the opportunities you guys have at Arizona State are incredible. I was lucky enough, again, with my son to walk through uh, and to get kind of a behind the scenes tour. And I was blown away with the type of uh, facilities you guys have to work with and the experiences that you guys are given. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, my son says, I know you want me to go to Arizona State, Dad, but <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's, it's pretty good, but <laughs> you're not going to do much better. I, I'll, I'll tell you the one thing that I enjoy about Arizona State um, is as great as the school is, and it gives you, like you, like you mentioned, the facilities, the resources are all at the very upper echelon. Um, it's the location uh, where you're in a major sports market. Um, you know, the Cronkite school is only about 10 blocks away from, uh, Chase Field, uh, 10 blocks away from Talking Stick where the Suns play. Uh, it's like a 15 minute drive to the Cardinal stadium where they host final fours and super bowls. And, you know, the Phoenix open comes through here. NASCAR comes through. It's like every single sport you could want to cover, think of covering, everything goes on at Arizona state. And that's why, so when I did, um, so I'm from the Bay area, when I went through my college decision, I wanted to be somewhere that if you wanted to get real live experience, um, you would have the opportunity to, and that's probably, that's my only pitch about Arizona state, but it's, it's, it's a very accurate pitch in my opinion, because you have the access and the opportunity to cover uh, division one sports and you have the access to cover every form of professional sports. Yeah, no doubt. And, and when we went through the, uh, the journalism folks, you know, were, were really, um, uh, they emphasize that, you know, that, hey, we, we have access, we, we have coverage, we, we send people like, you know, and I, I, I happened to be there when they were taping a show and they were rolling a feature with, with the Coyotes and like, it was really, uh, it's really special to have that type of, of access um, when you're in college, not, you know, again, as you said, division one sports, great. But oh, by the way, professional sports on a, on a, on the highest end, it, it's just something, it's something that uh, you don't have the opportunity to do in a lot of other places. And so that's one of the things I think, honestly, that's one of the things that, 
that my Scott likes about it, that, that he has the opportunity potentially, um, you know, for Suns and Diamondbacks and that kind of thing. He's kind of fired up about that. So we'll see. I mean, he hasn't heard from his other choices yet, but uh, yeah. we'll see where he ends up. But uh, listen, we're, we would be thrilled if he ended up at Arizona State because of the, the possibilities and the, and the opportunities that are there for him. Absolutely. All right, Matt, let's close with this. Uh, the Mets have been purchased uh, by Stephen Cohen. Uh, they have a lot of energy going around the franchise now that Francisco Lindor is a Met. When was the last time you were this excited uh, for a New York Mets season? Well, I, I, you know, I think we were all pretty excited in 2016, having gone to the World Series in 2015. I thought we all thought that that was the beginning of a run because the pitchers were all young. And I think all of my buddies who are Met fans, I think we all thought we were about to take off on a run and it just didn't happen. Um, so I'd say probably 2016 was the last time we were as excited. But I think, you know, the big thing, the ownership change for me is just, it just means the and ideally, because already we've already had a little hit, but, right. but ideally the culture changes um, and, the, and the idea of, and listen, you know, the Wilpons were there for a long time and they did a lot of good things. They got a lot of bad reputation at times, but they also got in their ways. They got in their own way a handful of times too. And I think the, the idea of, of Mr. Cohen coming in and spending money and doing things the way they should be done. And quite honestly, the way things are, are done in a lot of the major market teams, uh, I think that's the general excitement. Everybody's fired up because we're gonna, we're gonna be a major market team. I don't mean we, I don't play for the Mets, but yeah. you know, the Mets are gonna be a major market team and, and they're gonna make a move like Francisco Lindor, right? And they're gonna, you know, they're gonna spend $300 million to potentially sign him. Like the, that those things that were, and they did, listen, they did with DeGrom and they did with David Wright. And so they, they've made those moves before, but, but it just feels like those moves are uh, going to be more commonplace than, than the exception as they were in the past. So the, the direction of the, of the franchise, I think is what's got everybody excited. Um, and, you know, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough again in the eighties to be there uh, in 86, I was an intern at, at the local ABC affiliate in New Haven. And I, have, yeah. I was at game six of the World Series. I was at the Buckner game. Wow. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of cool. Um, so like th that team was unbelievable. Like that team was super good. They only yeah. won the World Series. We were excited about that team for a lot of years. Unfortunately, it only became in one World Series. So I just think the new ownership kind of gives everybody the feeling that that's kind of where we're headed, that, that we're going back to the 80s when from 84 to 91, 92, we won eh, probably 90, probably 90. So from 84 to 90, I think we won 90 games every year. 84, we might have, they might have won 88, but they were, you know, they were in contention. It was a good six, seven year run of being one of the best teams and being looked at as one of the best teams. I think everybody's kind of has that expectation again, has that feeling again that that could happen with, uh, with new ownership. So. It'll be fun. It'll be exciting. And I hope to be able to sit in the stands at some point this year. Yeah. All right. The last question I have, because I'm interested to hear a Mets fan's perspective on this. Uh, 
what is your thoughts on bringing back the black jerseys? Hate them. Hate them? Okay. Hate them. My sons, my sons want them. My wife just said she likes them. I hate them. I actually have one. Oh. I was lucky enough. Here's why. So we got married, and the next year, my wife sent me to Mets fantasy camp. So this is 19, this is probably 2000, right, honey? We got married in 99, so 2000. So January of 2000, I went to Mets fantasy camp, which was the height of the black jerseys. So I have a black jersey. Um, I've always hated the black hat. I hated the black jersey. Uh, I was kind of okay with the black hat with the blue bill. Like that was okay. Yeah. But as you can see, I'm a blue and orange guy. So yeah. Black, the black jersey seems to be coming back. I'm, I'm not excited about it, but if, as, as, uh, as uh, Mr. Cohen said, I guess, you know, what's wrong with wearing it every now and then? I guess it's okay. Yeah. It, it is, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an orange and, and blue kind of guy. Yeah. But, uh, I, I'm a fan of the giant orange and the Dodger blue, no doubt. I like yeah, it. Yeah, right, exactly. All right, so I got one for you, bud, before we go. So you're a Bay Area guy. Yeah. And I was going to ask you Giants or A's, but I could see over your head there's an A's flag. So why? Well, the A's flag or the Giants flag? Giants flag. Which which one are we? Are we we're, both? Oh, we're Giants. Yeah. Giants. This, wait, where's the, this one right here, the Battle of the Bay? Yeah. I got that on eBay uh, nice. because I think it's a great, it's a World Series that should have gone six games, uh, but I think the earthquake kind of uh, rattled the Giants a little more than it did the A's. I think the A's have been a little more battle-tested because they've been in the World Series in 88. Uh, and so, you know, they ended up sweeping the Giants. I grew up a Giants fan uh, because my idol was Barry Bonds. Um, and I know maybe as, as a purist, he, as a purist, you, you hate to hear it, but just – it was something about, um, you know, the Giants were terrible when I was growing up. Uh, but one of my earliest memories was us completely blowing uh, game six of the World Series uh, against the Angels um, in, a, in a year where the Giants really should have won. Mm -hmm. um, but I grew up watching uh, Barry Bonds chase the record, um, and that was exciting and just – you know, when you're six years old, the, the steroids really, you know, it's not factored in. You're just watching a guy smash baseballs into the cove. And, and I loved going to, uh, it's now Oracle park. It was SBC park. It was Pac Bell. It was AT&T. Um, but in my opinion, there's no, there's no, uh, baseball stadium better. Uh, I've been to Wrigley, I've been to Fenway uh, and they're great for what they are, but in terms of the modern stadium, you really can't top it. And, uh, yeah, I was actually, it's funny uh, that you mentioned that you were at game six. I was there the day before Bonds broke Hank Aaron's uh, record. I was there, and the pitcher, I forget who it was for the Nationals, uh, but he would not throw to Bonds. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just, he, he was like, it's not going to be me. <laughs> you know, it, it, it'll be somebody this series, but it's not going to be me. And they intentionally walked him four times. And I don't think I've ever left the stadium more frustrated in my life. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I remain, the Giants were my first love, no doubt. Uh, they were my first love. I, I got into baseball. Uh, I would spend every day in the backyard uh, with my dad. I had like a plastic baseball bat that I got from LAX. 
and uh, some tennis balls. And I, I probably hit, I don't know, 1600 home runs. So in my opinion, I'm the, I'm the true home run King. You're the true home run champ. Nice. Nice. I was in, I was in charge of our baseball coverage for the bonds chase. And we picked up a whole bunch of games along the way. And I actually produced a bunch of those games. So um, I was lucky enough to produce the game in San Diego where he tied the record. Yeah. Which was really kind of cool. I, I, you know, I didn't know how I was going to feel about it because obviously we were well aware of the steroid right. conversation. Um, but it was really cool that night when he tied the record. Uh, I remember walking out of there thinking, that's pretty cool. I didn't go to San Francisco. I actually went home. I had been in LA and then San Diego. And then I assigned somebody else to go to San Francisco for the break, the record break. I was in, I think I was doing something else. I was in charge of boxing at the same time. So I think I was at a fight when the, when the record was broken that night, but um, it was pretty cool. And I could understand how as a youngster, uh, Bonds was your idol. I mean, Bonds was a spectacular talent spectacular talent um i again as i said to you earlier my first gig at espn was the 90 playoffs which was the pirates and the reds right and i i did i did 92 as well with the braves and the pirates yeah um so i I had been around that group um and had been around barry who who um i don't know i guess i would say wasn't always the nicest guy but uh but I had, you know, I'd been around enough to know and just to see him play. I mean, he, he was, he was spectacular before the steroids. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't really know where I sit on the hall of fame conversation, but yeah. he, was a, he was, he was a really, really good player. And I think if there are no steroids, there's no question he's a hall of famer. I don't know where you, where you land on the morality when it comes to the steroid piece of it, but uh, he's pretty, uh, He's a pretty special player, man. No doubt about it. I, I was going to ask, I mean, would you vote him into the Hall of Fame? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, you know, he and Clemens are definitely Hall of Famers before I think people accept the fact that they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Right. So do you buy that argument? Is that good enough? I don't know. I, I feel bad for the writers. It is a tough spot to be in, you know, because there are plenty of there are a handful of guys that are in now that have been suspected. You know, what, what do you do with the Manny Ramirez, who was probably the best right-handed hitter of his generation? I wouldn't even say probably. I would say he was, right? So, like, what do you do with a guy like that? Um, the writers are in a tough spot, man. I, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I, 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 they cheated the game, right? They cheated the game. Pitchers were cheating the game, too right hitters it's like i don't know it's a tough one it's a tough one do you punish it it comes down to do do you feel they need to be punished for cheating the game i I don't know i I guess the argument that i would make is that in in my opinion bonds was the best player of his era uh no question and i think that he was content to be the best player of his era until an above average first baseman and a fairly mediocre player for the Chicago Cubs uh, started taking PEDs and became McGuire and Sosa. And, and I trace personally, I trace it back to that 99, 2000 season where noticeably bonds, who's the best 
home run threat in the National League at that time, takes steroids, and all of a sudden hits 73 homers. And it's like, well, it makes sense. I mean, the guy was hitting 50 homers without roids. Now he's taking steroids, and he's still the best player. Um, and so the argument for me comes down to, would you, are you okay with not putting the best player of his generation in the Hall of Fame? And are you okay with explaining that to future generations that come to Cooperstown? Yeah, no, I hear you, man. It is a, uh, it's a tough spot to be in. It really is. I mean, you know, the thing that, the things that's amazing to me about Bonds is steroids or no steroids. He was such an unbelievable hitter at the end of his career. Now, again, you can argue that the steroids basically made that career longer than it was going to be and made him more productive later in his career, which I guess is all pretty legit. But he was just such a good hitter, man. It, like it, you couldn't get him out. You couldn't get him out, you know. And it was I know I'm not talking about just home runs. I'm talking about just being a good hitter. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's funny. I, I think the steroids, I think the steroids really diminish the home run hitter McGuire was. I, I thought of McGuire when McGuire was coming through before the whole steroid rage. I thought of McGuire like. Jim Tomey, like Harmon Killebrew, right? McGuire was kind of that guy. He was on that path. And the steroids just totally derailed who he was and who he ended up being. You know, and you know, you can you can chalk up all of Sammy's run to steroids, but you know, to hit 60 home runs three or four times, pretty amazing. You know, so he was certainly hitting the ball uh, for a good portion of time. It was, it was a crazy time. It was cool. Don't get me wrong. I was, we were all wrapped up to into it. ESPN, we were, right. you know, we were wrapped up into it for sure. It was really cool. It was different. I think it's looked at totally different than, than it was back then, but um, you know, who knows? I, I, I don't know what's something's juiced now because people hit the ball the opposite way now that they didn't it goes a hell of a lot further than it ever did. I, and I, I know it's bigger and stronger, but you know, when, when the Willie Stargers of the world, couldn't do what guys today could do. You kind of scratch your head a little bit, you know? <laughs> I, I think back to game five of 2017 World Series, which is a, a shame because that was the the Astros-Dodgers 13-12 uh, game uh, when everybody just started hitting the ball out of the yard. I mean, it, it was it was entertaining, but it was, it was just – it was almost a, a carnival because – you had the Dodgers up 4-0, and then there was a three-run home run by the Astros, and then Bellinger came up the next inning. He hits a three-run home run, and then they – I don't even know if they scored a run in the field of play for the rest of the game. Mm. And there were uh, there were home runs like Yasiel Puig hit a home run off the end of the bat, which just somehow went 330. Yeah. And, you, and you're mm. watching, and you're thinking, like, wow, this is great, but this is wrong. Yeah, this, yeah. There's no reason this is happening, you know. I know it's crazy, man. You know, you know, Bryce Harper hit a home run at City Field. Uh, I think his last year as a National, and he literally broke his bat. He had half the bat in his hand, and the ball went out of the ballpark. So it's just I, I don't, something. Something's strange there, right? Something doesn't make sense there. Yeah, some, something doesn't add up. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, something doesn't add up. But baseball is always about the pursuit of. Uh, an advantage and uh i mean it, it really is a game where you know a 
a couple alterations to the seams on your curveball can make a world of difference in terms of the amount of break you get on the pitch. And, you know, it's, it's not the first time that players have tried to gain an advantage. I mean, Gaylord Perry admitted to doctoring baseballs and, you know, I'm sure a lot of other nefarious stuff went on in the, in the glory days of Babe Ruth and the 27 Yankees. So, you know, it's the nature of the sport and I feel like you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, you know, again, I think the, the whole idea, I think it got sideways when people were chemically altering their bodies. I think that was like, okay, well, maybe we've gone a little too far. <laughs> maybe a little Vaseline on the belt's a little bit different than sticking a needle uh, in my thigh and, and, you know, becoming 30 pounds heavier with 27 extra pounds of muscle, you know? Right, exactly. All right, Matt, uh, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jack, my pleasure, man. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. It was fun. It was absolutely fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Trail Mix Podcast. If you enjoyed the program, then don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at PodTMX for more updates about future shows and specials, and I'll catch you in the next one.